extensively, of course, uh, as an individual thing. But I did mention the book by H.A. Uh, Whitaker, uh, Abraham and the Faithful. And I got a, I just wrote them down. All, all the really, those are were the three areas of uh, reference that I say got a great deal of material for this uh, classwork on the Abraham Father of the Faithful by H. A. Whitaker and the World's Redemption pages 42 to 63 and pages 80 to 86 by Thomas Williams and Elpis Israel page 227 to 261 by John Thomas uh, you may have some other uh, references that, that bear upon this very well but those uh, I think are worthy of uh, making a note of and uh, reading in your spare time perhaps uh, concerning the basic giving, the confirming, and uh, what have you of the total picture of Abraham and the covenant. Uh, it is also, that next little printed chart is in with your notes. I, di I didn't make a comment on that at the beginning either. It's just, uh, that that's taken out of this book, by the way, uh, Abraham, Father of the Faithful. It's just trying to give the different ages and relate the ones, how old they were, Terah, Haran, Milcah, Nahor, Bethuel, Rebekah, Isaac, uh, Abram, and servants at different times that certain of these things happen. I see we have Rebekah misspelled there, in case you hadn't caught that. Uh, so you can... Again, I, I, I put those in there just as tools, much as the last uh, two pages of that uh, supplement I handed you. Uh, another thing I wanted to comment on, and I'm regressing a little bit here, uh, but these are just thoughts that have come to my mind since we started the presentation of the class. But it is it's sort of uh, axiomatic that uh, nothing is any good as far as any lesson or subject matter that we present without the right foundation. And I was more impressed with anything else than anything else with the uh, study of Revelation. And uh, it just seems to have its way of entering into all other studies and subjects of our basic, simple, foundational, first principle doctrine. If we don't have those, you know, no matter what we know about Abraham uh, or what we know about prophetic studies or, or any of the other studies, they just don't fit together and they don't make sense and they're not going to be very interesting or informative or helpful to us. And they're, uh, they're so simple that we're liable to ignore them. But as we read, uh, I'm, as I said, I'm particularly struck with Revelation, but when you read Revelation, it says time and time again, that man is mortal, that God has a solution, that there's going to be a kingdom of God on earth that is to be accomplished by the return of Christ. And just these simple uh, elementary first principle things. And so it is with this uh, study of Abraham and the promises given to Abraham. We don't read a great deal of direct uh, testimony that I want to make sure that there's no immortal soul connected with this and that man is mortal you must remember this but interwoven in the teaching uh, is this basic first principle uh, we all are perhaps uh, familiar with them the uh, we've lined them up over here we've seen them so many times that we're and again this perhaps is one of the things that uh, maybe we need to emphasize more and more as the day approaches that uh, on this these six doctrines over here that we see taught in uh, Orthodox Christianity, particularly so years ago, the uh, so-called Christianity or the church today, uh, and I think in all fairness to them, teach little or nothing. In other words, if you want to believe the immortality of the soul, you can. If you want to believe something else, you can. It doesn't make a much difference. They, they really don't have much doctrine left in the basic 
uh, worldwide church, if you will. But it was at a time that they believed very emphatically in these six doctrines, the immortality of the soul, the trinity, personal devil, heaven going, hell going, and universal resurrection. Whereas the truth of the Bible is the exact opposite of each one of those. And we find these six principles on the other side of the chart there, the mortality of man and the unity of God and the principle of sin in the flesh or residing in man uh, and the kingdom to be on earth, the unconscious state of the grave and the necessity for resurrection and a limited resurrection as being the foundation of the Abrahamic covenant and of the total teaching of uh, all Bible truths. And I recommend and feel that in this day that we live, it's a day that somebody's read here during the week, of making many books there is no end and much study of the weariness of the flesh, that if we spend our time, that, that from those five books or references right there, we don't need any more or too many more. Now I'm not saying uh, that it's bad to read this book, of course, is not labeled in there, but I'm not saying don't read this book. But what I am saying is that we have the wealth of truth in these five publications, and if we will stick by them and read them and uh, integrate them into our thinking and, and our belief, the world's redemption, Elpis Israel, Eureka, the law of Moses, and the blood of the covenant, we're going to have a foundation that no man can move out from under us. Uh, I don't know, uh, there, there are subsidiary subjects, of course, that are parallel to many of the subjects, perhaps, in the world's redemption and, and Alpha's Israel. Eureka, of course, deals primarily with the apocalypse, but those that have never studied Eureka will find that there are many, many more subjects and exhortations uh, of uh, extensive value in the works in Eureka and the others, too. Let's get back to the uh, subject matter of Abraham, and we're in the 15th chapter of Genesis. And we just mentioned the fact that Abraham was considering uh, or weighing the possibility that, that his uh, head household servant, Eliezer of Damascus, uh, might be the next in line to uh, have his property or whatever was coming to Abraham, uh, seeing he had no seed in Genesis 15, 2. But the word of the Lord came unto him in verse 4, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. So again we have a promise or an assurance from God that uh, Abraham, if he would exercise patience in this matter, uh, would see God working in the course of time. Uh, and Abraham was brought forth abroad, and you do remember that we mentioned one of the earlier promises that it was daytime, and in, in this instance it, it evidently was, was night. He says, Look now toward heaven, and tell or count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. So this statement, so shall thy seed be, emphasizes God's intent to develop his promise with Abraham. There's reassurance here. God has not forgotten. He is dealing with Abraham as a greater to a lesser. Prospects in Abraham, as far as Abraham goes, were not so immediately visible. Of course, in the mind of the Almighty, he sees the beginning and the ending, and we need not worry uh, about that. But in the mind of Abraham, much as if we can interject or place ourselves there, we can see where he might uh, very well be doubtful and, and concerned as to just what was going to take place. God, we know, has no variableness nor shadow of turning. And this is one of the reasons we lean so heavily on his word. We know that there may be times when we can't understand some of the things therein, that, that they're puzzling to us, but uh, we know that God is consistent, that he does not say one thing in one place and contradict himself in another, and that we can rely on him. He has been this way 
from the very beginning. It is a part and parcel of his makeup. Uh, it is impossible, as the uh, words to Timothy say, that God can lie. And we have a very reassuring factor here when we're dealing, as Abraham was, with God. So there was sufficient given to Abraham, both visibly and invisibly, for him to believe. In verse 7 of this 15th chapter, God reiterates how he had brought Abram forth out of the Chaldean country for the purpose of giving him this land for an inheritance. Abram asked for proof as to how he would know that he shall inherit it. And the answer given by God opens to us one of the very interesting events in the Abrahamic account. Abram was instructed to take a heifer of three years old, a she-goat of three years old, a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. The three animals he was to cut in half, but the birds he was not to divide. When the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a horror of great darkness fell upon him. After some assurances about his seed, the sun went down, and a smoking furnace and a burning lamp passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, or with Abram. His name had not been changed at this point. Now the word bereth, we've seen perhaps several times. I can jot that on the screen. It's a a rather common uh, Jewish uh, word, and one I guess it should be somewhat common to us, uh, having to do with with uh, covenant, uh, is from a original word meaning to purify or cleanse, and it signifies a purification or purifier, because in all covenants made between God and man. Sin and sinfulness were ever supposed to be on man's side and that God could not enter into any covenant or engagement with man without a purifier. Hence, in all covenants, a sacrifice was offered for the removal of offenses and the reconciliation to God on the part of the sinner. And hence the word bereth signifies not only a covenant, but also the sacrifice offered on the occasion. We'd like to turn to uh, Exodus 24.8 for a reference relative to that statement, where Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. And also, uh, 50th Psalm, verse 5. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We also note very carefully that the title given to Christ in Isaiah 42.6 and Isaiah 49.8, he is spoken of as a covenant. Let's turn and make reference to those uh, two passages. Isaiah 42.6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and will give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. And Isaiah 49.8 Thus saith the Lord, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee. And I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. So Christ himself, being a... An, uh, among other things, uh, the covenant victim, the sacrifice, 
uh, and, and many other features in the total covenant picture is spoken of here as a covenant in contrast to the generally accepted definition that we might give to a covenant as a sort of a writing or legal document of some kind that, that is just filled up with a few words. Uh, granted, I think we all know from our early, even Sunday school days, where we define a covenant to be an agreement between two or more parties. Many nations have been known to make their covenants or contracts in the same way that we see in this account in Genesis 15. A sacrifice was provided, its throat was cut, and its blood poured out before God. Then the whole carcass was divided through the spinal marrow from the head to the rump, so as to make exactly two equal parts. These were placed opposite to each other, and the contracting parties passed between them or entering at opposite ends, met in the center, and there took the covenant oath. This is referred to in Jeremiah 34, 18 to 20. I'm not sure that I have that written down here. I'll, I'll read what I have. I will give the men into the hands of their enemies, as, it, as it, this is finding out who... who the men will be given to. I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant, which have not performed the words of the covenant, which they made before me, when they cut the calf in twain and pass between the parts thereof. Also in Deuteronomy 29:12, that thou shouldest enter, or the margin says, pass into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath. So a passing into the covenant uh, characterizes perhaps the description of the passing between these divided animals uh, that we have here given to us in the account of God confirming the covenant uh, with him. The word covenant comes from two Latin words con, meaning together, and venio, I come, I come together, and it signifies an agreement, association, or meeting between two or more parties. It is true in our laws today where a great deal of stress is put on contract law. Failure to perform allows the other party to claim for damages or restitution. In this cleaving of the animals and the passing through by the parties, there is signified, according to a noted rabbi, that if they broke their engagements to submit to the punishment of being cut asunder themselves. In the footnotes of uh, Clark's commentary, there's also a couple of paragraphs, I think, that are worthy of mention. When it says, take the, the three animals, the uh, heifer, the she-goat, and the ram. It is worthy of remark that every animal allowed or commanded to be sacrificed under the Mosaic law is to be found in this list. And is it not a proof that God was now giving to Abram an epitome of that law and its sacrifices which he intended more fully to reveal to Moses, the essence of which consisted of its sacrifice, sacrifices, which typified the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. On the several animals which God ordered Abram to take, this rabbi remarks, the idolatrous nations are compared in the scriptures to bulls, rams, and goats, for it is written in Psalm 22:13. Many bulls have compassed me about. Daniel 8:20. The ram which thou hast seen is the king of Persia. Verse 21. The rough goat is the king of Greece. But the Israelites are compared to doves and so forth. Song of Solomon 2:14. O my dove, thou art in the cleft of the rock. The division of the above carcasses denotes the division and extermination of the idolatrous nations. But the birds not being divided shows that the Israelites 
are to abide forever. I thought that was an interesting remark. I don't know enough myself to agree or disagree, perhaps. Uh, I don't feel that the mention of the ram and the he-goat and and Daniel are perhaps uh, designed to tell us that these animals are always representative of Gentile or uh, idolatrous nations, necessarily. But it it is a thought that uh, Dr. Clark uh, has presented. I think... uh, and we're very conscious that we're not offering a, a great deal of solution to this. But the things as we review this incident in the uh, account of Abraham, where we do know that God used this instance to uh, satisfy or proclaim to Abraham that he was going to act. In other words, he confirmed an oath. Uh, He confirmed it by an oath. I think we should be careful to say he confirmed it by an oath. What did he confirm? What he had promised. Does God need to confirm what he says? Well, obviously, I think most of us would say, no, if God says something in the first place, I will do so-and-so, that he will do it. He doesn't need to come and say, well, here is proof that I will do it. But in the case of Abraham, and in the importance and the development of this Uh, event in which we have the salvation of mankind embodied, God saw fit to give us this additional proof. It was no uh, uh, reduction of the uh, dignity and power and office of God that he should have to sort of give additional proof, but he chose to do this so that we, or so that Abraham, would understand uh, some of the details. And involved in this, we see sacrifice. We see God exemplified, I believe, in the smoking furnace and the burning lamp. We see the Spirit of God or His power. There's nothing animate that passes between these uh, pieces that have been divided, such as we read in Jeremiah or Deuteronomy where the men in an ordinary covenant came together and and agreed to abide by whatever the agreement provided for. In 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 this case, inanimate things representative of the spirit or power or authority of God passed between the sacrifice, which in some sense must have pointed down to the effective sacrifice of Christ, and it was to be accomplished uh, at a subsequent time because I think the deep sleep that Abraham uh, fell into in the horror of great darkness signified uh, him entering the death state and what God was saying in effect is that it will be a good number of years uh, before this thing transpires. And of course, since the time of Abraham, we're now nearly 4,000 years removed and the fruition uh, is not yet, uh, has not yet happened. Uh, There was one other thing was said about the affliction of Abraham's seed for for 400 years, which can be traced as a matter of uh, history. I have, uh, when I was anticipating, again, working on this subject matter, uh, I think all of us maybe are somewhat conscious that uh, two or three or four people are liable to come to Bible school and all of them have the same subject. And I was talking with Jim Malay before he came and I I had an idea of what what subject he was going to use. And he, uh, when I told him I was thinking in terms of something Abrahamic, he, uh, he gave me an article uh, having to do with the confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant dealing with this uh, smoking furnace and burning lamp. Uh, I thought it well that I read just one paragraph because it's a rather a lengthy article uh, that might give us some of the substance uh, behind it. I feel that this is one of the things that Christ had in mind when he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. It's quoted from John 8, 5, and 6. He saw in this the carrying out of God's great plan and purpose, in which he would receive the fulfillment of those promises that were made to him. We have only a brief account in this 15th chapter of Genesis confirming the promises that God made to Abraham. But no doubt Abraham saw in the slaying of the animals 
and the passing of the smoking furnace and the burning lamp between the parts of the animals, the answer to his question recorded in the 8th verse, Whereby shall I know that I will inherit it? The whole, this whole transaction was for the purpose of confirming the promises that God had made. And it was this that so impressed Abraham that we read in Romans 4, 19, 21, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. This removed any doubt from the mind of Abraham, and he knew that he would inherit it. In Hebrews 6.16 we read, An oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. And God chose the Chaldean oath to confirm the promise made to Abraham. He came from the land of the Chaldeans, and therefore he would understand this solemn pledge. In making a covenant under this Chaldean oath, Animals were slain and parted and laid upon the ground, and both parties to the covenant passed between the parts of the animal, which removed all differences between them and brought them into perfect harmony. Now Abraham saw in the provisions of this oath that the promises were to be confirmed in that seed that was promised to him who would, by his life of perfect obedience and sacrificial death, make possible the fulfillment of these promises. The different animals symbolized the different phases of the work that God was to accomplish through Christ in carrying out this great plan of salvation. We're going to move on now to the 16th chapter of Genesis where we have the account of uh, Hagar. Abraham and Sarah have now dwelt for ten years in the land of Canaan. Sarah continued to be barren, and her faith in what had been promised was at a low point. She took matters into her own hands instead of waiting for God to work. The arrangement that she concocted was probably legal according to the laws and practices of the times. A wife who owned slaves had the right to make use of them as she pleased. The slave being the absolute, absolute property of the mistress, not only her person, but the fruits of her labor with all her children were her owner's property also. The fact that Abram hearkened to Sarah in this matter raises a question as to the degree of his conviction. I think that there is sufficient circumstantial evidence that Abram and also Sarah had feelings that this scheme at this point when they entered into it was agreeable with the total plan to provide seed. When Hagar had conceived, she developed an animosity, we read, uh, for Sarah. If you, I'm not reading this verse by verse. Uh, uh, verse 4, that is. Her mistress was despised in her eyes uh, upon her, Hagar conceiving. Why was this? Did she feel that she should now occupy the position of the number one wife in the household? This is uh, probably uh, an accurate guess, but there may be other conjectures that someone may have that are better than this. There was some reason why Sarah became despised uh, in the eyes of Hagar. Well, Sarah immediately recognized that she had acted unwisely. And she made efforts to extricate herself from this uh, problem situation. The words of verse 5 show Sarah trying to retain Abraham's confidence, and she had some success, as Abram in verse 6 charges her with the work of settling the problem. It is, it is short-sighted to try to explain every action from a natural point of view. True, we try to feel with both Sarah and Hagar, but we must remember that the providential hand guiding this series of events had designs for allegorically teaching us that the seed provided would be not the product or con conjuration of man, but that of God. 
The contrast of man trying to interject his devices into the affair is one of the lessons that we most importantly want to recognize. Sarah's method of dealing with the problem was to deal hardly with Hagar as we read in verse 6. Sarah dealt hardly with her. This probably consisted of giving Hagar laborious and menial tasks to do. The verb implies that Sarah afflicted her, a term implying stripes and hard usage. Whether or not it was her intent to drive Hagar away is hard to say, but Hagar did leave and fled into the wilderness. The angel of the Lord came to her by a fountain of water and the way to Shur. Now Shur, as best as we can determine, was located on the road from Hebron, where, where this household was now located, to Egypt. So it is probable that Hagar intended to return to Egypt. Commenting on this uh, event of Hagar and Sarah, I'd like to read a couple of paragraphs from the book Abraham, Father of the Faithful. When the child was born, Abraham fell in readily enough with Hagar's wish to call him Ishmael. But for him, the meaning behind the name was altogether different. God will hear. Abraham had learned the lesson and, and the faith that God does not need the devices of men to help him in the fulfillment of his promises. If the Apostle Paul is to be accepted as an authority, the best lesson of the story of Hagar is not written in the book of Genesis, but in the interpretation which the latter unfold which the later unfolding of God's purpose in Christ has supplied. It is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? And the Greek word there means telling another story. The story they tell was evidently clear enough in Paul's mind but it is not made more lucid for the modern reader by the way in which the allegory of two women is elusively interpreted by further allegories concerning two suns, two mountains, and two cities. These women are, or that is, they represent two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, bearing children into bondage, the bondage of the law, which is or corresponds to Hagar. That is quoted or taken from Galatians 4, uh, around the 24th verse, and continuing, I think, until the end of that chapter. The age in the last verse of Genesis 16, given there of Abraham, at the birth of Ishmael, is 86 which coincides with some of the numbers we looked at uh, earlier. He was 86 years old uh, at the birth of uh, Ishmael. Looking at uh, Genesis 17, Abram was 90 and 9 years old, and this was 13 years after the birth of Ishmael, and after some faithful waiting on the part of both Abram and Sarah, and I don't think we're taking too much for granted there, God appeared unto them with yet another reassurance. After encouraging Abram to walk circumspectly, God reiterated his intention to establish or make good his covenant with Abram. Abram bowed in humble reverence to the ground to indicate his great respect for the Almighty. Abram's name was changed at this time to Abraham, signifying the father of a great multitude. The promises of seed, nations, kings, land, perpetuity were again specified, God leaving no doubt that his purpose was strongly wrapped up in his commitment to Abraham. The expression in the seventh verse of this chapter is to the effect that the covenant is to be an everlasting covenant. 
The word covenant there again is this word beareth, and uh, the word everlasting is one that many of us are familiar with. Olam. And the word olam, if we make a little study of it, uh, more literally and, and correctly means uh, for the age, or for the hidden period. So if, if it is God's intention, if we can simplify this, uh, that the period or hidden period be uh, for a short period of time, so be it. And if it be for a long period of time, so be it. But it is an unspecified uh, of duration, the word olam. Uh, it might, uh, I think we had this in our class here two years ago. I, I just recall it. In, in, the, in the Bible, the first six places that the word olam is used is translated with a different word. In the first place, I just happen to have it marked in my Bible as Genesis 3.22, and it's called forever. It's the last word in Genesis 3.22. And the uh, next place it's used is Genesis 6.3. My spirit shall not always, and the word always there is olam, strive with man. And in Genesis 6.4, the word olam uh, mighty men which were of old. The of old is from Olam. And over in Genesis 9:16, I may remember the everlasting covenant. The everlasting there is Olam. That's a skipped one. Genesis 9:12. Uh, it's translated perpetual. So the word Olam has probably more translations than that, but it's very interesting to know that even as we sort of start unraveling it in the Bible, the first six places that it's used give us a sort of a different translation each time, uh, indicating that it is, uh, I believe, correctly defined as for a hidden or unspecified period. In this case, uh, we feel that when God says everlasting covenant, that he means that the duration of it uh, is to be uh, without end. The father of many nations uh, is used here also in, in the promises, and nations is translated from the word goyim, G-O-Y-I-M, something uh, different from a flesh and blood connection. Uh, goyim is mostly but not invariably applied uh, to the Gentile peoples. There is further evidence that the wider fatherhood of Abraham is meant by the institution in this uh, 17th chapter of Genesis of the rite of circumcision. Circumcision was to be a token of the covenant between God and Abraham. The requirements were that every man-child born in thy house or bought with money of any stranger must be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Failure to do so resulted in that soul breaking God's covenant, and the penalty was that he was to be cut off. This token of the covenant, like the confirmation involving the smoking furnace and the burning lamp, was appointed through the shedding of blood. There was an admission of man's need for redemption from death, and there was an acknowledgment that God would provide the necessary redemptive feature through a sacrifice involving bloodshedding. There are many more things to be said of circumcision. Paul in the fourth chapter of Romans, verses 11, 12, 16, and 17, says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure 
to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Many Christadelphians confuse the effect of circumcision with that of baptism. The simple fact that circumcision was effected upon an unwilling subject who had no conscience of sin should tell us at once that it cannot be parallel to baptism, which is an act of some careful deliberation after weighing the consequences of remaining in a lost condition in Adam and the advantages of becoming nigh to God through a change of federal relationship to being in Christ. The bloodshedding in circumcision is literal, while in baptism it is symbolic or imputed. The justification of circumcision is or was temporary, giving heirship to life in the land and terminable upon transgression of God's law. The justification of baptism is permanent, giving inheritance to everlasting possession of the Abrahamic land grant and terminable only after evidence of unworthiness at the end of a life of testing. Circumcision pointed forward to the sacrifice of Christ and lost its efficacy once that sacrifice had been made. It was a symbol of the cutting off of sin's flesh and admission that man was related to sin and in need of an effective atonement. It pointed to spiritual circumcision or circumcision of the heart whereby the motions of sin are cut off from the life of a believer. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. That's from Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Circumcision on the eighth day is a type of the cutting off of sin's flesh in the eighth 1,000-year day. As sin will exist in the millennium, in fact, the purpose of the millennium is to bring it under control and finally remove it. Then cometh the end, we read in 1 Corinthians 15:24, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. As sin and death were introduced on the eighth day of creation, so sin and death will be removed, purposed, promised, and effected through his everlasting covenant involving Abraham and his seed, Christ, will redound to his honor and glory through this cutting off of sin's flesh. Sarah's name is now changed to Sarah at this point. We keep saying Sarah or Sarah, Sarah, Sarai. Uh, I believe it's in the Septuagint. That, that there's so many different ways of, of course, we have Sarai changed to Sarah. And in the Septuagint, the, her original name was spelled S-A-R-A, and it was uh, changed to S-A-R-R-H-A, which is, I guess, of no real academic value. Uh, sometimes the spellings uh, are, uh, uh, I think the phonetic aspect of the word Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, uh, is sort of easier to pronounce or, or rings truer than S-A-R-A-I, is always, uh, I guess, an extra syllable to pronounce or something, but, but you can run Sarai together and you don't know whether you're saying Sarai or Sarah or something, but, uh, but the significance of the change of her name means princess. S-A-R-A-H, if, if the King James, as the King James uh, spelling has it. So uh, in changing her name, much as God has changed the name of Abram to Abraham, he is saying, in effect, that a princess is a member of a royal family 
and that uh, royal seed will come in the line of this family and possession of a kingdom and, and there are certain intimations uh, that are inherent in that uh, name change. It, uh, it is further evidence that God intends to continue and develop his promises to Abraham just, just in the simple uh, mechanics of changing uh, Sarah's name. Statements made to Sarah are of the substance of what we've labeled in the notes there, the seventh promise. It had just been promised to Abraham in verse 6 that kings shall come out of thee. Sarah's name linked her with this future line of kings. Explicitly, Abraham was told that I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be of her. Now this, this promise is one of great import, if you stop and just think a moment on what is being said at this uh, particular juncture. Abraham's reaction to the promise involving uh, Sarah was one of what we might describe as very robust faith. Although the translation here might suggest somewhat of the opposite. The falling upon his face, if we, as we have seen in verse 3, was a prostration before God in wonder and thanksgiving and praise. The laughing is undoubtedly a laugh of joy. And from this very circumstance, Isaac had his name. When Christ spoke of Abraham rejoicing to see his day, he could well have had reference to this time as well as to other times when his faith projected him forward to the seed who would provide ratification of the covenant. What divine wisdom, foreknowledge, and ingenious revelation and mercy is shown in the seemingly casual incidents as we go along in the development of the promises. Paul's words in Romans 4.19 give us perhaps the real import. We've quoted these before, but we'll read them again. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. So we might just make one comment on, on verse 17 before we leave it, that uh, we don't feel that it is, it is the correct view if anyone feels that Abraham was sort of laughing in scorn or rejection or, or anything like this, but that when he fell upon his face and laughed here, that, that he actually was uh, prostrating himself before God and rejoicing or uh, expressing his uh, appreciation or thanksgiving to deity for the continuation and the development of this wonderful promise. Now Abram, Abraham's next words, spoken as a man speaks to his friend, have also been read by some as an expression of unbelief. He says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee, in verse 18, as though Abraham still clung to the old idea long rejected by God, of adopting the son of the bond slave Hagar as the seed of the promise. But it is just as easy to take these words as being not expostulation, but the outreaching inquiry of a mind which has already fully accepted the impossible, as who should say, must this birth of a son to Sarah mean the utter casting off of my son Ishmael? Have you no place in your purpose for him? But we feel that perhaps that is more likely the impact of verse 18. Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Abraham is not wishing that Ishmael might have a prior uh, status to that of Isaac, but that some blessing or a good might be dealt out to him by God. And of course, in the 
blessing of Ishmael, uh, the expanding of him into a great nation through twelve princes, is assured, as God goes on to say here, but it is made clear that the primary blessing and extension of the everlasting covenant is to be through Isaac. And those are, uh, I guess we say, sort of magical words that we often repeat, in Isaac shall I see be called. And if we don't know the import of that, again, we lose the effect of God's promises. In Isaac shall I see be called. In the uh, 18th chapter of Genesis, we have the occasion there of angels uh, coming to visit uh, Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Abraham was still in the uh, area of Hebron at this time. Uh, Verse 1 says he was in the plains of Mamre. Uh, He was at his tent door, and three men stood or appeared there uh, to Abraham. He was hospitable, and he ministered to their comfort, unusually so, I think, by uh, today's standards. And uh, as, as we sort of review the uh, mechanics of that visit, uh, we're, we're impressed by his uh, actions and attitudes uh, to total strangers. Uh, some writers on this subject have made reference to the New Testament quotation about entertaining angels unawares, which may have uh, some uh, bearing here, that uh, by showing a great deal of, of hospitality, that uh, you never know when good might be coming from it. So it's uh, incumbent upon us to, to be hospitable. Uh, and I think today, in the day in which we live, we, we sort of say uh, we're sort of past the Good Samaritan age because of all the dangers and hazards that, that come upon uh, meeting total strangers and this type of thing. But it's something I think that we can work into our thinking uh, about being hospitable and uh, ministering uh, to the comfort uh, of others, and particularly in relation to uh, speaking on those things that will enhance the word of God in their minds. But these angels inquired of Abraham as to Sarah's whereabouts, and and they were told that she was in the tent. One angel told Abraham that Sarah was to have a son within the year, if we are to understand the phrase, according to the time of life. Upon overhearing the angel's promise, Sarah laughed within herself. Now we have a, another case uh, of use of the word uh, laugh here. Sarah's laughter in this instance was not like that gladness previously attributed to Abraham. From the following verses it appears that she was doubtful. The angel asked why Sarah had laughed. Also inquiring, is anything too hard for the Lord? The promise of the son was restated and the timing again given. Sarah denied having laughed, for she was afraid. I don't know whether we could translate this into embarrassment or, or just what her condition of mind was, but, but it is expressed here uh, that she uh, was afraid. This would indicate that her laughter had not been born of happiness, but showed some lack of faith that, what, that God would do Uh, as he had said that he would do. Now the rest of the chapter, uh, for the sake of time, uh, we're going to skip, and it involves the uh, intercession on behalf of the residents of Sodom. You recall the incident where Abraham sort of uh, kept making the appeals that there be so many righteous men, would you not destroy the city? And he kept coming down from 50 to 40 to 30 and so forth. Uh, and God said, finally, if you would find ten righteous men uh, there, uh, Abraham said, for ten righteous men, and God says, well, find me ten, and we'll save the city. And they could not find that many. So uh, Sodom is doomed 
for destruction. And the account of the destruction of Sodom, of course, is coming on to our attention in the uh, 19th of Genesis. In this 19th chapter, if we want to follow along there, we don't have too many comments to make about it. Two of the three angels that had appeared to Abraham is sort of interesting. Unless you read very carefully, uh, I do at least, you lose track of, uh, of angels by specificity. Uh, but here are two of the three that had appeared to him. They were the same, uh, two of the same three. And they came to Sodom. So they went on from the visit to Abraham and Mamre. We don't have our map up here, but uh, Sodom apparently, since the uh, people who dig in the soil can't find its remains, so they make speculations that it's, that it's over in the Dead Sea area. I guess we could throw that map up there. Uh, Sodom would be, here's your Dead Sea, and here, this, again, this Mamre Hebron, I think, would be down on this side. Uh, but Sodom and Gomorrah would be roughly in that same area, so we're not talking any miles uh, difference in, the, in location here. So uh, very close by, uh, we had uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. So they came to Sodom, and Lot invited them to his house. This was two of these three angels. And to capitulate this chapter very brief, briefly and quickly, uh, uh, the men of Sodom came to Lot's house and wanted to, they inquired as to who the visitors were and, and purposed to do them harm and damage, I suppose. And uh, so the two angels through, I think, first of all, Lot offered to even send out his uh, daughters and, and any other uh, appeasement that he could, could do to avert their uh, attacking these strangers. Again, it's sort of strange that the hospitality shown to total strangers is so accented in this account, or, or these two chapters account, that, that a person would sort of offer on the sacrifice or, or altar of something his own family, as opposed to a couple of total strangers, uh, does seem rather unusual. But uh, the angels interceded for Lot here and uh, I think pulled him back into the house and struck all of the uh, men of Sodom there with uh, blindness. So the angels then advised Lot to get his family together and flee out of the city. So they were going to sort of following on the heels of what they had told Abraham a few days earlier, they were going to destroy the city of Sodom. Now Lot's son-in-laws paid no heed to the warning. So Lot, we might say, had a choice of staying with, with his family or proceeding on as the angels had advised him. So he gathered together his wife and his two daughters and they fled out of the city, escaping to Zoar. I don't have Zoar on my map, and frankly, I don't know where it is unless it, it's in, again, the general Dead Sea area that we have there. Uh, again, I'm using the uh, term. Another thing, if we pick up little tidbits, the word Dead Sea or the expression Dead Sea, I don't know if you all know this, is not mentioned in the Bible. It's always Sea of Salt or Salt Sea or something like that. But You know what I mean when I say Dead Sea, but I think Zoar is maybe uh, somewhere in that, that area that now we now see as the Dead Sea. Does, uh, maybe we can bring that up if somebody has some information on it at our discussion this afternoon. But they escaped to Zoar, and along the way, and certainly we can all speculate that it was within the sight of, of burning Sodom as it perhaps stood there uh, smoldering away, uh, Lot's wife, who had previously been instructed not to look back, and I think the looking back would indicate affection or, or, or desire to have the uh, things of that city, which included its way of life and attachments and what have you. So she looked back and was destroyed in becoming a pillar of salt. I don't know whether we'll get any arguments as to, as to say she didn't die. I haven't heard that yet, but it just says she became a pillar of salt, which is an unusual ending. So Lot's daughters, as we read, I believe, in the tail end of this chapter, 
later caused him to be drunk with wine and lay with him and bore each of them a son, one Moab and one Ammon, who were to become uh, nations that we would read about in uh, later years in, in the uh, account of, uh, and have some prophetic bearing, the countries of Moab and Ammon, which are on our map actually right in this general area. But we will stop at this point and start tomorrow with the uh, 20th chapter of Genesis where Abraham goes to Gerar.